You know, whenever, uh, whenever a person becomes a Christian, uh, they're always part of a family, God's family. We're never by ourselves, Amen. right? And um, so one of our church family came into my office this past week, and he said, um, you know, I just came into some money that I wasn't expecting, and um, I had this feeling that came over me that I didn't like. It was a feeling of how can I hold on to this money? And I realized that generosity is the vaccine to greediness, right? I've learned uh, from scripture that um, if I remain generous. So he said, do you think that I could just give some of this money a little bit to each person in my church family? And that's why you have a $5 bill in your uh, offering, or in your bulletin this morning, uh, so that... uh, We could help this brother not get attached to coming into this money all of a sudden. And I thought, what a great example of what we're talking about here with generosity and uh, the seriousness of how uh, greed can get a grip on our lives and totally control us. And so uh, this morning, I'd like you to just kind of hold on to that $5 bill as we go through a portion of scripture that talks a great deal about the reality of um, uh, dealing with money. You know, our scripture this morning, I think, is extremely informative and very faith-forming. This is a, a great passage of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. If you want to follow along in the Bibles there in the seats, it's on page 968. And uh, as usual, we'll put the scriptures up in front of us. But um, I think this is a place where uh, some of the most significant teaching in the Bible uh, about generosity Uh, is found. And this morning we come to what I think is the heart of the issue, Uh, the really the very core, the very heart of uh, the issue of generosity. And so uh, you might remember that last week we talked about how is it that we Christians get so rich. Remember that? And uh, we saw in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul says this, he says, for you know the grace, the undeserved favor of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become incredibly rich. You and I live with the riches of Christ. He emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his privilege in order that you and I could live with the riches of Christ in in all of its different dimensions. And so... It's not surprising to me that, you know, you have this great verse at the sort of the front end of this section of Scripture. And when we get all the way down to the end of this Scripture in chapter 9, the very last verse of chapter 9, Paul just can't help himself. He just sort of blurts out, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. His inexpressible. I don't have words to explain how great the gift of God really is, right? Thanks be to God. Paul just can't help himself. Uh, talking about the inexpressible gift uh, that God has given us in his son. And so in between these two verses, how we got so incredibly rich and this wonderful uh, expression of this inexpressible gift that God has given us, we've got some very practical implications uh, spelled out. You remember this whole section of scripture is about Paul trying to put together an offering for the poor people in the poor Jewish Christians down in Jerusalem. And he's up in Corinth, and uh, Corinth, you remember, is sort of a commercial place. And uh, the people who were Jewish, who became Christians, were persecuted in Jerusalem. Eventually, they all, you know, scatter here and there. 
uh, because of the persecution and so forth. Uh, but the people down there have serious needs. There's a famine that's on and plus the persecution. And so Paul is trying to collect an offering from the Gentile churches to give to the Jewish churches and uh, to give uh, relief to an, uh, a very serious need, but also to uh, bridge a racial divide between the Jews and the non-Jews in the early church. And so Paul has run around. You remember he used the churches in Macedonia as an example to speak to these uh, Corinthians. And so look what he says in verse 10, chapter 8, verse 10. In this matter, Paul says, I'm giving you my judgment. I'm giving you my opinion. I'm telling you what I really think. Paul's thought this through, what he's going to say here in this section. He says, in this matter, I'm giving you my judgment that this benefits you. This benefits you. Paul starts and says, listen, this is going to benefit you. This is going to not deplete you, but this is going to enrich you. When he talks about uh, being generous with God. Uh, I'm giving you my opinion. I'm giving you my judgment. This is to your benefit. You will gain when you interact with God over the issue of generosity. Uh, And look what he says here. He says, uh, in this matter, I'm giving my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. A year ago, we talked about this. Remember, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, A year before this, Paul had talked to them about this uh, offering and so forth. And uh, he says, uh, if you'll notice here, uh, it'll be to your benefit if you do what you started to do a year ago, but that you do it, not just that you do it, but that you desire to do it, that you do it with the right attitude, that you have this desire in you to be a part of this ministry to these uh, people. And I, I want to uh, suggest to you that it's so important that not only that we do this, but that we desire to do it. Um, generosity with any of these five T's, you can do, but you can do it without love. You can give your time, you can begrudge it, you know, you can hate it, you can say, oh, I really resent this, but it's what I have to do, or what I should do, or what will people think of me, and all of that kind of stuff. And any one of those five T's, you can be generous without love. But I'm going to tell you, you cannot be loving without being generous. You can be generous without love, but you can't be loving to God or to your neighbor without being generous. It's the way love is expressed. It's through sacrificial generosity. You can be generous without love, but you can't be loving uh, without generosity. And so Paul says here, not only that you do it, but that you desire to do it, that you have the right attitude about it. Verse 11 So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So that your desire to do this may be matched by actually doing it. You ever have this problem? You ever come to church and get convicted or read your Bible and and get convicted about, you know what, I know that this is what God wants me to do, but by Monday it's gone. Right? Right? And uh, you, you, you say, you know, I really, I know what God, maybe in prayer, you know, you get this sense that God is leading you to, you know, write this note or help this person or give this money or share the gospel with somebody or whatever it is to be generous with one of these five T's, you know, and, and you have the desire to do it. I mean, when you leave church, you're like, you know what, I, I'm going to do this, but you don't follow through. And that's what Paul's problem was with these Corinthian people. They had the desire to do it. They had committed to do it, but they didn't follow through. They didn't do it. 
And, uh, and, and so Paul is writing this uh, in that kind of a context because they didn't have uh, sort of the follow-through. He's like, finish what you started, Paul is trying to tell these people. So notice the second part of this, he says, um, by completing it, out of what you have. Out of what you have, not out of what you don't have. In other words, out of what God has blessed you with, put God first. Out of what you have. I, I never think it's a good idea uh, to borrow, to give to God, if you don't have the means of repaying it. That's kind of foolish, right? People get themselves into all kinds of problems. God is saying, look, I'm not asking you to give what you don't have. I'm asking you to take a measure, an account of what you do have, and then to give out of your means, out of what you do have, not out of what you don't have. You don't have to borrow. It's foolish to borrow, right? And especially if you don't have a way to repay. There are times to borrow, but um, if you don't have a way to repay, it's foolish. And so Paul says, look, you know, uh, I want you to be ready to do this, and I want you to do it, uh, but out of what you have, out of what God has already given you, verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. Paul is saying, this isn't about communism. This isn't about trying to make everybody equal. This is about love. This is about loving your neighbor, especially your family, your Christian family. And by the way, he says, you know, this is a time where you Corinthians have an abundance and they have a need. And there may be a time when you have the need and they have the abundance. That's what being a part of a family is. This isn't about, you know, sort of endorsing laziness on the part of the other people. Uh, Paul's not encouraging people to give so that other people don't have to work. He's addressing a legitimate need that uh, other people in the family have. And I think as we uh, think about this, um, this is about loving our neighbor uh, as our strength. and uh, uh, Loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And this is about volunteering. This isn't about anybody forcing anybody. This is different than, than um, you know, what the government calls distribution of wealth. This is not to eliminate you know, the rich and the poor. This is to be a family and to love our neighbor uh, as we love ourselves. And so I think fairness, as Paul is using this word here, is expressed by our generous giving. And um, again, you know, as a Christian, I'm never just an individual. I'm always part of a family. And uh, if you're part of a biological family, you know families have needs from time to time. Things don't always stay level. And different things happen that come, that challenge and so forth. And and family is there for one another. And I think that's what Paul's talking about. This is an expression of our love for one another. And then in verse 15, he kind of quotes the Old Testament. He does quote the Old Testament. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Um, He's talking about when the people gathered manna. It's a a quote from um, Exodus chapter 16. And when the people gathered manna, some people gathered more than others, but everybody shared and everybody had enough, you know. And um, he's using that example from the Old Testament to talk about what he means here about sharing. And then um, in verse 16, I think there's tremendous wisdom here. Uh, Notice this section uh, from verses 16 to 20. But thanks be to God um, who put into the heart of Titus the same 
earnest care I have for you. Okay? Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. And with him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our goodwill. Paul is sending Titus right ahead uh, to make arrangements for this uh, offering. Now, Paul is Jewish and Titus is a Gentile. And Paul is thinking ahead and saying, you know, it'd be like Dave DeVries coming and saying, I'm going to take an offering for all the Dutch people that I know, right? Paul is like, I'm going to take an offering for all the Jewish people, and I'm Jewish. And so Paul is anticipating. Some people are going to say, you know what? He's biased. He's just doing this for his friends and his family and his people, his kind, and so forth. And so Paul finds Titus, talks about this offering that they want to do, and he sends Titus, a non-Jewish person, just very wise, right? Guarding against, you know, uh, the wrong kind of thing. And uh, Titus has the same passion. If you go back to chapter 7, well, I don't take the time to do it, but you can read about Titus. And, and you notice in verse 17 here uh, that Titus is doing this of his own accord. He's volunteering. Nobody's twisting his arm. He's saying, you know what? I'd like to help with this offering. Can I tell you? Churches go forward on the basis of volunteers. Right? I mean, churches are, are full of volunteers. If people don't volunteer, the church doesn't move forward. It has to be something between you and the Lord. It has to be of your own accord. It, it shouldn't be something somebody's twisting somebody's arm for. But everybody volunteers in a family to do something. And when everybody does their part according to the way they're gifted, according to, uh, as Scripture says, we all have a gift. When everybody does their part, guess what? Everybody wins, just like in a family. And... Uh, uh, churches depend on volunteers. And Titus is like, you know what? I'll do that. And then in verse uh, 18, you know, not only Titus, but another brother is going to go, a third person. We don't know who it is. He's not named. Um, but three people are going to go and start to collect this offering. And again, I say accountability. When it comes to money, you can't be too careful. Accountability is such an important thing. And uh, money can be such a temptation and so many of the Lord's people have fallen uh, f- away from their faith, actually, Paul writes to Timothy, uh, over the issue of money. And so um, you can't be too careful when it comes to money, and it has to be handled wisely. And Paul is sending, uh, you notice, somebody, um, I don't know who it is, there's speculation about it, but we're sending, verse 20, to a brother um, whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters. Uh, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you, that you're going to come through and so forth. The fourth person. But notice it says here um, that they didn't send somebody who's smart business-wise. They sent somebody who's got a reputation for his character, somebody who's known by not just a church but the churches in the area. Uh, Paul's very careful, and and the Holy Spirit puts it in the Bible for us so that we can be very uh, sure of what we're doing, especially when it comes to this subject of money. And so you ask the question, you know, why all the caution? Why all of this caution? And look at verse 21. He says, um, uh, well, let me back up to verse 20. Uh, We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, listen to this, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Men. 
Paul is like, we're very cautious about this. We're sending four people to arrange this. People of good reputation, of high spiritual caliber. You know, and um, I think this is significant that Paul instructs us about uh, how uh, honorable, how to do things in an honorable way. And um, why is this such a big thing? Well, because the Lord's reputation is on the line. What happens when somebody messes up financially? Think about some of the headlines that you've winced over in the past. When somebody steals some money from some ministry, you know, and you think, and of course the non-Christian is like, see, those Christians, they're just money hungry. They're like everybody else. They just put a facade over, and we take a hit, and God takes a hit. And uh, in a little while, you'll see in this passage why this is such a, a significant thing. And uh, the other thing I notice here is that Paul says this in that verse, in verse 21, he says, you know, I'm concerned about what's going on here, not just in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of men. Now, every once in a while, I meet a misguided Christian who will say something like, I don't really care what people think. The Lord knows. That's just stupid. That's just not wise. It's not honorable. Right? Paul is saying, no, you know what? I care about what the Lord thinks, obviously, but I also care about what people think. And I'm taking every precaution because I don't want to set back the cause of the gospel. And so I'm taking every precaution to do this right so that if I mess up, I'm not going to mess up here, you know. And I think this is significant because, you know, Paul's not a people pleaser. There's other occasions where there's a theological issue on the line. And Paul says, I don't care what anybody thinks. This is the truth. You know, read Galatians. He's like, you Jewish hypocrites, you've got to go, you know. And, you know. So Paul's not like a people pleaser. But in this regard, he's saying, you know what? We have to do what's honorable because the Lord's reputation is on the line. And uh, people are watching. And so I'm not going to do just what's right in the Lord's sight but I'm concerned to do what's right in people's sight so that no accusations can come back at us, right? Uh, I think this is very significant. And then I love this. Uh, as he goes on, listen to this. He says, and uh, with those uh, three brothers, we're sending our brother whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers Listen to this, of the churches, the glory of Christ. How does Paul describe the church? What are we? We are the product of Christ. We're the glory of Christ. Right? If, if Jesus is in heaven and the angels are picking on him for, you know, emptying himself and coming down and all that, he's like, look at my church. Look at what I was able to produce by my sacrifice. Look what I was able to do by emptying myself of my riches and entrusting them to my people. The church, the glory of Christ. Now, the church is people, right? The church isn't the building. The church isn't the meetings. The church is you. You are the church. You are the glory of Christ. You and I are the glory of Christ. Now, glory, I, I, my favorite definition of glory is just to look good. What is God's glory? It's to make God look good. It's to show off God in the midst of our world. What is it? What's God's glory? It's like, you should know this God. He's glorious. He's perfect in every way. He's loving to the nth degree. He's glorious. There's nothing more glorious than God. What is the church? The church is the glory of God. It's what God shows off. He's like, look at my church. Look at my people. Because that's what the church is. Yeah, there's a lot on the line. 
with how we live. True? You following us? You don't like it, do you? <laughs> I can tell by your... Really? <laughs> so uh, then the, uh, verse 24, the last verse in this uh, chapter, he says, uh, So give proof before the churches of your love. Generosity is the proof of love. Give proof, Paul says. Don't just be talk. Don't just have the desire. Don't just agree with me. Don't just say, yeah, that's right. Don't say, oh, yeah, I would really like to do that someday. Paul says, no, the proof is in the doing of it. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these other people. What's the proof of love for God and love for our neighbor if it's not generosity? Give proof. He says, generous giving is proof of love. And again, uh, you can be generous without love, but you can't be loving without being generous, right? Okay, chapter 9. Just uh, plowing right through here. Um, It's superfluous, Paul says, for me to write to you about the ministry uh, for the saints. He's talking about there down in Jerusalem. Uh, For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying... Uh, that Achaia has already uh, since last year has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove in vain in this matter. You see the situation Paul's in. He was there in Corinth, and the people were all pumped up about it, and they all agreed to do a certain thing, and and, and but they didn't follow through. You know things happen, right? You ever make that? You know, you know I'm going to do this, but then things happen. And one of the things that happened, you know, there's. Two other letters most people think that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have. And uh, one of the things that happened is the people turned against Paul. There were some people, jealous Jewish people, who um, came to uh, Corinth and started uh, you know, talking Paul down. And they started to uh, you know, criticize him and so forth. And, and so you know, it doesn't take much of an excuse for people to stop giving money. Any excuse will do. And so, oh, well, if we can't trust Paul, and that's what they began to spread around, and that's what one of these other letters is Paul's defense. And there's sections in Corinthians where uh, Paul defends himself as an apostle and so on. Um, But uh, that's one of the things that happened. And so uh, Paul is saying, you know, this started a year ago, and, and based on what you said, I went around bragging about you. I went around telling you, telling all those churches in Macedonia what great Christians we have up in Corinth in that church. And uh, now Paul's saying, you know, but you didn't follow through. So now, you know, I've got egg on my face. And so I don't want that to happen. And so uh, he's saying, you know, uh, your zeal has stirred most of them. It motivated them. uh, But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove to be in vain in this matter. So that you can be ready as I said you would be. Uh, I I need you to be ready, Paul says. And I think this, uh, too, is a, a, a... He doesn't want it to be a crisis. He doesn't want to come to Corinth and say, you know, where's that offering that you talked about a year ago and it's not there? One of the things about uh, our church that I was so proud of, you know, we had a bad year last year in terms of just facilities and whatnot, and and we had to buy a new boiler and a new air conditioner and so forth, and we had money in reserve, and we were ready, and we could do it, and it wasn't a crisis, and it wasn't a, you know what I'm saying? Um, It wasn't like, well, what's the least we can get by with? It was like, no, we're going to have you know, some uh, money ready, and, and we did. Now, we need to put that back there, and we're not doing so good at that this year. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's what Paul is saying here. Again, these are principles, I think, about being generous. 
Uh, it's a matter of agreeing with God, uh, not a matter of just agreeing or just uh, desiring. Uh, you'll notice in verse 5, he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. I don't want to have to come there and twist arms. This should be a thing between you and God that you should be excited about, you know. Um, and when we get down a little further, um, uh, it's a great verse, verse 7 in chapter 9. It says, each person should give as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves what? A cheerful giver. God's not looking for somebody who's going to begrudge him after he's given to us. And, and the rest of the passage will explain why that's so true. Uh, it's not a matter of just agreeing or desiring, but a matter of doing. You know, Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 7, a little story. You're probably familiar with it. And uh, just let me read a couple of verses. Verse 24 it says, everybody who hears these words of mine and does them. You can hear the words of Jesus. You can read your Bible, come to church, have conversations, do Bible studies, hear the words of Jesus. But it's the person who does them who is like a wise man who built his house on a rock, Right? And you know this, and the rain came down, the floods came, the winds blew, it beat on his house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on a rock. Everybody who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does not do them, like if you hear it and you agree with it, you desire to do it, but you don't do it, if you don't follow through, that's what Paul was on the Corinthians for. If you know what God wants you to do and you hear and you know, but you don't do it, you're like a foolish person who builds his house on the sand and the rains come and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat against the house and it falls apart. It falls down because it's not built on the solid rock of God's word. It's not just agreeing with God. It's not just desiring to do what he says. It's in the actual doing of it that we build a life that becomes kind of shatterproof uh, and that doesn't uh, get destroyed in the storms. And again, when it comes to money, if you think of Jesus saying, if you do what I tell you, uh, there's actually over, uh, over 2,350 verses. People always say there are more verses in the Bible about money than there are about heaven and hell combined. There's over 2,350 uh, verses in the Bible that talk about this. And I think we realize that you know, God's economic policies are different than American economic policies. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? Are you going to watch the debate tomorrow night and uh, listen for, you know, what's the economic policies uh, that are being propagated? Because when we're more American than Christian, uh, we might end up like the Corinthians. When we allow, and, and we're Americans, and so, you know, we live in this culture, we're saturated by it, and if we're unaware and if we're, and we're not paying attention, uh, we can end up being more American than we are Christian, and uh, be like the Corinthians who agree with God and even desire to do what God says, but end up building lives on sand. And when the storms of life come, uh, we can't stand. And so when I think about American uh, economic policy, it's uh, consumerism versus uh, Christian economic policy, which is based on contentment. Remember Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Consumerism says, you know, in order to be content, you got to have everything you want. I think contentment says contentment comes from being thankful for everything you have. 
consum- you know, America can't go forward without consumerism because the whole economy is dependent upon wanting more and uh, assuming that you know, when I have more, then I'll be content. And God says, no, you're incredibly rich already. And uh, being thankful for what we already have creates uh, contentment, godliness with contentment. Um, uh, I, I think the world that we live in works against contentment. I think when we act more like um, uh, Americans than we do as Christians, we live with greed more than generosity. Uh, our friend, uh, one of the members of our church family, said, you know, I noticed this uh, little spirit of greed, right? How can I, I come into this money? How can I hold on to it? And uh, I didn't like that in me, and I need to uh, guard against it because it's more American than Christian. Uh, when we're more American than Christian, I think we create more debt than we do disciplined savings. I think with uh, every couple I've married, I've always said, hey, you know, this is an old rule, but give the first 10% to God, give the second 10% to yourself in savings, and live off of 80%, you won't have any problems financially. Stay away from debt, you know, as much as possible. Not that there aren't occasions where debt is <clears throat> okay, but uh, I think the American economy is based on uh, indebtedness rather than on disciplined kind of savings and saying no to ourselves. In the American economy, we value leisure more than labor. Uh, we value pleasure more than prudence. We pay more attention to Wall Street than to the Word of God. Uh, I know Christians who are diligent about reading the Wall Street Journal but have dust on their Bibles. And when we're more American than Christian, there's a whole different economic kind of approach that we can get drawn into without even realizing it. We end up more influenced by hype than we do by the Holy Spirit, even as we sang about this morning. So in the Old Testament book of Haggai, there was a, this is kind of an interesting, uh, there was a time in the life of Israel where people became materialistic. And so God decided, I think I'm going to bring a little uh, recession into uh, my nation. And um, in uh, Haggai uh, chapter 1, here's, here's the story. It's just kind of interesting. He says, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Uh, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, my house, the house of the Lord, lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now, I think this is very significant. Have you ever taken time to just take stock of consider your ways? Do I even know what I'm doing with my money? Do I even know where it goes? Somebody said money talks. Yeah, it says goodbye, right? That's what it says. (laughs) It's the only thing it says is goodbye. And so, you know what? Um, The Lord's saying through Haggai, you know what? Have you ever taken some time to consider what you're doing? Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. You know, do you have a plan? Uh, You have sown much and you're harvesting little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. And uh, he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag that has holes in it. Goodbye. Now look, he says it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about this. Think about what you're doing. Uh, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and and the ground that brings it forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. 
God's like, I think I'll impose a little recession here. Why? So that I can help you realign priorities and help you think through, you know, what you're doing. Consider your ways. Uh, It's a great uh, thing to think about here, um, to take and and be serious about what we're doing rather than just be sort of caught along in the culture that we live in, not even think about it. Um, Barb and I, you know, a while back, I think I mentioned to you, You know, we're getting to be that age, so we went to one of these retirement seminars that tell us how to manage our finances. And um, I, you know, I learned some things uh, that was helpful that I hadn't really thought about and so forth. But ever since then, uh, they must share names and addresses with everybody else that has one of these seminars. And now I can go to one of these every day of the week, right? Because they just keep coming. And it's so easy to, like, get caught up in this thing. And uh, I find myself like, you know, because they come and they ask these questions, you know, are you prepared for the future? This could happen. That could happen. The economy's going to collapse, blah, 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 blah. I never really thought about that before. It did just fine. Not that we shouldn't be prudent. Not that we shouldn't, you know, be prepared and, and do our best and all of that. But at what point do you say, you know, enough's enough. And live your life, uh, the life that God has for us. And so in the New Testament, it's no different than in Haggai. And verses 6 to 8 here, I think we come to sort of the heart of what God is saying. And so in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, what's the point of all this? What's the point of everything Paul's been saying up to this point? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 6, the point is this. The point is this, Paul says. Whoever sows sparingly, he goes back to being uh, the illustration of a farmer. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Hey, the outcome of your life depends on how willing you are to sow at the front end. Whatever you pick up in the harvest in October is dependent on what you put in the ground in the spring, right? I mean, that's pretty simple. Everybody understands that, all things being equal. So look at this, verse 7 and 8. <coughs> Each one must give as he has made up in his mind, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. And God is able. Now, I think every one of you would agree with this, right? God is able to make all grace abound to you and having all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you can abound in good work. Would you agree with that? I think everybody would say, you know, God's able to do that. He's able to make grace abound. He's able for us you know, to uh, enjoy all of his benefits and, and so forth. God's our provider, remember? God owns everything. God controls everything. And so God makes promises that he keeps. And you and I come along and we believe his promises. That's how we have this relationship with him. He makes some promises. He says, listen, I've taken all of your sins, all of your deficits, and I put them on Jesus. And if you'll trust me that I'm telling you the truth, you know, you'll be in heaven and for all of eternity with me. makes a promise. And because he owns everything and because he controls everything, he always keeps his promises. There's nobody that uh, can come against us, right? Uh, he, 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 he invites us to build our lives on the rock of his uh, solid word. And when we generously give to him out of what he first gives to us, what he's promising here is to pour his blessings into our life. He's saying, if you trust me, if you believe me, if you take me at my word, if you believe my promises, um, I will bless your life. God loves you, right? He wants you to love him back, even with all of our deficits. 
Even with all of the, you know, so many people think that, you know, God really couldn't love me because I have all these deficits or sins in my life. I have all these things that I've done wrong and so forth. And by the way, if you ever ask yourself, well, what can I do with my deficits? What can I do with my sins anyway from the past? You know, maybe you could go to a doctor and he could give you a pill and it would suppress the feelings that come. Maybe you could go to a counselor and the counselor could kind of listen and repackage it and rename it and then give it back to you. Maybe you could go to a friend. You know what? Friends are really good because they help you blame somebody else for your sins. That's what friends always do. They always say, you know, this really isn't your fault. You're really a good person. You know? But listen, if you go to God with your deficits and your sins, what does he do? He takes them away. He takes them away. He's the only place you can go and get rid of your deficits. And so God invites us. He loves us first, and then he says, love me back. Trust me. I love you. And if you come to me with your sins and your deficits, I'll take them away. I'll get rid of them, right? And um, that's the promise, one of the promises that God gives us. But be really careful here because you notice what he says. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in luxury. Oh, that's not what it says. You may abound in consumerism. No, no, no. You may abound in every good work. Why does God want to bless you with more? Why does God want to entrust you with more of the fives, the five T's? So that we can abound in every good work. So that the fruits of his righteousness in us can multiply. Okay? Um, And we have to be careful because this is not the health and wealth gospel. The health and wealth gospel says, look, give to God, God will give to you, you'll be rich. You can have a Cadillac, you know? This is not that. This is God saying, can I trust you? You can trust me, but can I trust you? Can I give you more talent? Can I give you more resources? Can I give you more time? Can I, can I give you the truth of my word? Because you will then abound in good works. You will know what to do with it, and you will be generous with it. And so when we're generous and when we enjoy being generous, uh, I love this seventh verse. It says, give uh, generously uh, as you've made up your mind, for God loves How do you experience more of God's love? How can I have more of God's love? God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful generosity, a cheerful, generous person. How do I experience more of God's love? Wow, how do I get more time? Uh, (laughs) Cheerful giving, right, is about our heart's condition. It's a response Uh, from our hearts about God. You know that word cheerful? It comes from the Greek word hilaris, H-A-L-O-R-A-S, I think. But anyway, it's the root of where we get our word in English, hilarious, hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Oh, man, I got all of this. I got all these bills. I got all this. But you know what? I'm going to give. It's hilarious the way I live. That's what God's saying. And you know what? When you live like that, you'll experience God's love. You'll, you'll, you'll know that there's this smile. When you, anytime you try to do God's will, right, there's always bumps in the road. Some of them are internal and some of them are external. But anytime you're committed to doing what God asks you to do, there's always resistance. 
because the kingdom of God is pressing in into the kingdom of this world. And there's always resistance. And it's when we persevere and when we're uh, happy about it and when we're so forth. Um, I, I just want to quick go through this, right? Because, you know, uh, so we believe that God is able, right, to make everything abound. And then he says in verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, please notice that the text goes from God is able to God will do this. Now, we all believe God is able. Nobody would disagree with that. But do you believe that God will? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply, will multiply. Well, I believe he could. No, you got to believe he will, right? Will supply, will multiply your seed for sowing, and will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You live righteously. You do the right thing. You do what God is asking you to do. And God will make all grace abound. And then here's our theme verse for the year. You will be enriched. Which goes all the way back to what Paul said. I'm giving you my opinion here. You will benefit if you're generous. You can't help but benefit because God will be more generous to you. So that you will have more to be more righteous to increase the harvest of the righteousness that Christ provided through us uh, through the cross. And through all of that will produce thanksgiving for the glory of God. When those Jewish Christians down there in Jerusalem get this big offering, they're going to start rejoicing and praising the Corinthian people for doing it, but they're going to realize the only reason those Corinthians, you know, the Corinthians had really bad reputations. Nobody would trust a Corinthian. But they're going to realize, you know what? God must have really done something in those people's lives. And God is going to get the glory. And God is going to get the credit. And that's what this is all about. That's the harvest. God looks good. God gets the glory. That's what the church is in the business of doing. Showing off God in the presence of the world. And uh, notice, you know, the whole purpose of this is so that people would give thanksgiving and glory uh, to God. And this is so counterintuitive. Most people realize sane people, uh, that giving obviously reduces our resources. God says, no, giving generously increases your resources. It's just a matter of whether or not we trust him. Um, Do I believe God's promise here? Can I tell you, nothing in the world can stop God from making good on his promises except one thing, lack of faith. Lack of faith. I have more, but um, I just want to close with this, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you don't believe him, game over. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. Number one, that he exists. And number two, that he rewards for our purposes, generosity. That he rewards. It's just what Paul's saying here in this text as you go through it, uh, that God rewards uh, generosity. And again, uh, Jesus told a story. You can look it up this afternoon, Luke chapter 12, uh, about a guy who came into some money, and uh, he decided, you know what? What am I going to do? I'll just build a bigger barn. I'll hold on to it. And God says, you totally missed the point of why I gave it to you. You're going to die and not be rich toward God. And that's a huge mistake. Um, I was going to tell you about the funeral that uh, Barb and I went to and some of our folks for the uh, Mike Pakovich, one of our missionaries. 
yesterday, and it was just a glorious uh, occasion to, to just see, uh, you know, the testimony of his life and how he generously gave of himself and, and how it returned in so many different ways. I'm done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause before you uh, this morning and thank you so much for your generosity. We're rich because you became poor. You paid a huge price. You, the God of glory who needs nothing, chose to love us, and it cost you. It cost you the generosity of giving up your son and emptying him and humbling him and putting him on a cross so that our deficits could be covered so that we could become rich in Christ. And Father, I pray that we might live in such a way that we bring glory, that the church is the glory of Christ, and that each one of us would remember that, and that we would uh, do like those people did back in Israel. We would take uh, account of what we're doing and how we're living, and we would uh, uh, you know, reassess and realign uh, voluntarily so that you could be first in every one of these five areas, these five T's, For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.